This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, this story is a wild one, and it has to do with hippos that are descendants, three females, one male. They were illegally imported in 91, I believe, by drug cartel leader Pablo Escobar. So they then escaped following his death in 1993 and they have been reproducing in the wild they have become an invasive species they are known as the cocaine hippos and they are causing a lot of damage in that part of the world elliot dornboss joins us now senior lecturer in criminology at nottingham university thank you so much for taking some time this morning Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, This story is just, uh, even reading through the details, it's a a very, very strange one. What are your thoughts on the fact that here we are this many years later and dealing with these uh, cocaine hippos, as they are often referred to, and causing a lot of damage uh, in, uh, in this part of the world? Yeah, it's a really it's a fascinating case. Obviously, like, like you were saying, um, Escobar purchased them, and then when he died... Um, they took all the animals out of the private his private zoo, other than the hippos, because obviously they're quite large and difficult to move. And then, you know, they've just been growing ever since. Um, in I think is it 2006 when they first went back, they were there were 16 hippos. And what uh, I think report from this week was they don't know exactly, but they think there's over 200 now. And you know. Oh, Obviously, hippos are lovely and brilliant, but they are, it's an incredibly difficult situation because, you know, they can get territorial. There has been property damage. Um, sadly, one got hit by a car or a truck the other week um, as well. So with the population growing, it's incredibly difficult to handle. Um, and it's a really complicated situation that obviously is globally like everyone's hearing about it. So, yeah. And the the size, like you said, the the number of these hippos is much greater than people thought before. They're getting into uh, the Magdalena River system where uh, they've been reproducing, we're understanding, and also having a, a pretty negative impact on the ecosystem there. So, so how do you even begin to deal with an out-of-control, invasive hippo population? So it, it's difficultly i think is the answer <laughs> um so they're looking at a lot of different options so they were only officially declared as an invasive species in last year in 2022 um a few years well, i say a few in 2009 um three of the hippos were causing a bit of tra- I think, a bit of trouble and so they were there was an initial an attempt at a cull um, a hippo, I think if colloquially they called the hippo Pepe, was killed. Um, and that was like met with huge like international and local sort of outrage. Um, and so since then, there's been a lot of different discussions. They're looking at everything from, um, well, they're looking, they're looking at everything from sort of sterilization of the male hippos, um, of the female hippos. Um, they've been looking at potentially relocating them. I think there was a plan that was, um, hit, hit the media um, a few months ago about um, that's trying to move 70 of them to um, sanctuaries in Mexico and India just to kind of try and level sort of the population off a little bit. Um, they've been looking at, you know, um, you know, lots of different uh, methods, but they're likely going to have to use lots or like, you know, more than one. Um, obviously, it's an incredibly, you know, complicated situation and 
it's really easy for um, everyone to sort of say, oh, we shouldn't have to um, sort of euthanize any of them. But obviously we don't live next to, you know, a hippo. And so it's, um, you know, there's probably going to have to be a combination of this sort of fertility control, of relocation, of, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, sadly euthanasia. But yeah, it's a tricky one. And I understand, too, so the Colombian government has tried to do some of these things in the past, uh, trying to address the issue with uh, the things that you mentioned as far as uh, contraception or sterilization. I mean, these animals, though, from what I understand, they can weigh up to 9,000 pounds. Uh, I don't want to be the person that's in charge of the the contraception program or the, the sterilization program for these hippos. Oh, you're, yeah, you're completely right. Um, they're incredibly territorial, you know, obviously... They're quite a dangerous animal as well. Um, and so there are a lot of risks for the people involved. You know, then we're brilliant, you know, brilliant minds involved with this. But, um, you know, if you're trying to, um, you know, put a dart gun into a hippo, um, obviously that's quite dangerous. And in particular, if you're trying to put, say, um, like get a male hippo out of the um, water so you can um, castrate it. Um, obviously, there might be other hippos around, so it creates a lot of dangers for the people involved. In addition to it all being in whatever option that they're looking at, they're incredibly expensive with um, some of the stuff like relocation um, potentially going to cost millions. Right. And and certainly I, I know the Colombian government has been talking about that and saying that exactly that 3.5 million in some case, even just to move 70 of these hippos. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, and what you've kind of touched on, uh, there are predictions that unless some of these steps are taken and, and a very bold move is made, that as the population grows, it could be more than 1500, which sounds like that would be very problematic. Yeah, loads of different estimates from um, some conservationists surrounding this with, you know, the population is reaching over a thousand, which would be incredibly dangerous for the environment. Um, Looting some of the rivers, you know, they pose a lot of risks to people. Um, Fortunately, nobody has been killed. I know there's been reports of some um, some people being injured and property damage. Um, But it's, you know, it's a it is risky if these, uh, unfortunately, if um, the population keeps increasing. And I think, that, you know, obviously, personally, it's a difficulty because when you look at a lot of other invasive species, they're managed in very different ways. But I think the attention, and it's you know, arguably a good thing, means that they are considering um, lots of different options as well as just sort of euthanasia and stuff like that. But like I said, it's probably going to be a combination of different methods that are used here. Right. And and I'm sure they're looking at this now thinking, ooh, it would have been much better had we done something earlier on and stopped this before things got out of control. And like you said as well, mm-hmm. anytime we talk about euthanizing an animal or culling a herd, there are people that, that question that. But it does seem in this case, I, I've seen people say, well, what's the big deal? Just let them go and, and let them become uh, that they're, they just live in this river system. But it sounds like that really mm-hmm. isn't an option either. Uh, it's... <laughs> Again, it's yeah, like you said, it's you know, everybody involved in these sort of situations conversations are incredibly passionate and the issue you have though is, you know, like I like I don't live next to a hippo and unless you're in that situation living near an animal that is, you know, potentially incredibly dangerous, you know, it's difficult. So I know they're exploring options like fencings and, you know, keeping people away from them and I know there's been sort of um like reports of like locals using like certain areas when the hippos aren't there. But 
it it's sadly um, you know like you know likely to be have, have to involve some form of euthanasia as well as volatility to control um, to keep the numbers you know at a level which doesn't pose a risk to the environment and to the people in the region. Um, so yeah. Well, it's uh, just such a a bizarre story. We'll continue following along with that. Elliot Dornboss, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, a new indictment focusing on Donald Trump. And for the very latest on that, we are going to check in as we do every Friday with Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about this and the significance of this indictment and the charges. What do we know at this point? So we know that Donald Trump is the one who brought this to the public's eye by putting it on his social media uh, account last night and then having his lawyers do a bit of a media circus over the last 12 or 14 hours to talk about the seven charges that are in this still sealed indictment. What we don't know are what each of these charges specifically have to do with, and that is because A, it's still sealed, but B, the Department of Justice and the special counsel who's been leading this investigation, they have yet to put out any kind of public statement and they're facing a bit of pushback and criticism on this because it's simply allowing for Donald Trump to essentially set a narrative here but ultimately uh you know the fact that you have a twice impeached and already indicted former president who's now facing indictment on federal charges this is a new set of of kind of severe legal perils that are weighing over this president now, this former president. And so we know that, uh, like you said, federal crimes that he's being accused of, mishandling classified documents, uh, obstructing efforts to investigate that. Do we know any more other than than what Donald Trump is saying? What could potentially be or what, what is the focus of this? Well, I mean, look, this all stems from uh, the the mishandled classified documents that were supposed to be in Washington, that were taken from Washington to Mar-a-Lago, possibly in the hours after Donald Trump left in 2021, but in the hours before Joe Biden was inaugurated, raising that question of, you know, was Donald Trump still president? What had been declassified? What hadn't been declassified? And ultimately, we've heard contradicting statements from the former president for the last year or so saying that either things weren't classified or he had the ability to declassify classify anything, including by just thinking about it. And and ultimately, you know, this set up a fight between the federal government and Trump to get these documents back. He fought it. He's accused of obstructing uh, when it comes to moving boxes around or having people move boxes around. This could result in charges linked to violations of the Espionage Act because of the sensitive information in some of these documents. Uh, but at the end of the day here, Jill, this is significant. Uh, and there are legal and political experts who are saying, look, Donald Trump did this to himself, despite the fact that both he, his legal team and Republican allies are trying to blame this on, you know, quote unquote, weaponization of the government by the White House. You mentioned as well, this is the second indictment. So what potential impact could that have on his run for another term as president? 
Well, I mean, it potentially makes him more of a target, at least in the eyes of the other Republicans who are in the race, specifically someone like Ron DeSantis, who is polling in second place, still, you know, dozens of points behind Trump, but nonetheless, in that kind of ability to reach where he is, he could also become a target for people, uh, you know, further down the line, including someone like Mike Pence or Chris Christie, who entered the race this week. Overall, uh, you know, outside of potentially taking a, a hit in the in the polls, this isn't going to stop Donald Trump from running. The first indictment didn't, two impeachments didn't, uh, and these indictments and even a conviction aren't going to pull him out of the race because constitutionally you can be behind j- uh, behind bars and still be able to run and win uh, the presidency. So he has you know a significant legal challenge ahead that's going to maybe keep him off the campaign trail if this consumes him or any of the other active investigations underway. But, you know, this is going to be something for Republicans and his, you know, challengers to try and contend with and figure out how to go on the attack, something they've been hesitant to do for the last several weeks. So when we're looking at this uh, kind of, uh, if we look at the first charges, uh, we know that he entered a not guilty plea. That was for the 34 counts of falsifying business records uh, over that hush money. So that's expected to go uh, to trial perhaps next year. Now we have this indictment where are we expecting to see him or he's supposed to be in court on Tuesday? Yes, he's expected to be in court on Tuesday in Miami. And this is interesting because most of this has been taking place in the courthouse just down the street from me in Washington. But the special counsel recently, kind of behind some secrecy, impaneled a second grand jury in Miami, likely because there could have been a legal fight over where charges uh, you know, are being filed based on where alleged crimes took place. Uh, and so he will be in a courtroom in Miami on Tuesday, uh, it's likely that we will see what played out in, in New York. He will enter a not guilty plea. He'll likely be fingerprinted and possibly photographed. And then, uh, you know, we'll see court dates set down the line. Legal experts are saying, look, this is likely going to happen if it goes to trial sometime next summer, which is just in the few months before the November election. So this is going to have a significant impact on not just his political future, but the entire kind of election process, because it calls into question his ability to campaign. It calls into question his ability to be attacked and participate in any of the debates. And Reggie, you mentioned some of the other contenders for the next presidency, Mike Pence, uh, uh, Chris Christie, uh, Ron DeSantis. What does what impact do you think this will have or could potentially have on those uh, candidates? Well, I mean, we need to see. They've been they've been reluctant to go after the former president in any kind of vicious way, the way that he has been going after them. Mike Pence has made some critical comments of of Donald Trump's conduct in and around January sixth and his attempts to subvert the twenty twenty election. And that you know, those are kind of some of the, the the hardest points that we've heard against the former president. You know, is it going to be enough for them to peel away some of the support that's been sitting under Trump? Uh, you know, it's hard to see. Pence is in around three or four percent. Chris Christie in and around three or four percent. Christie, though, has come out over the last 12 hours to say, look, no one is above the law. And he's applauding the Department of Justice uh, for for going after Donald Trump. Uh, You know, this is, again, a chance for everyone else in the race to kind of, you know, 
carve a new path forward and potentially show that maybe political and legal baggage that follows Donald Trump may be detrimental to to the party. Uh, but, you know, we're still in the early hours and we need to see how they're going to react either on camera or in statements outside of, you know, some of the talking points here that some of them are already saying that this is, again, is, is you know, the fault of Joe Biden and that Joe Biden is going after the, the former president, even though the president himself has said, look, I have nothing to do with this. Well, lots to keep tabs on on that one for sure. Reggie, as always, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've likely heard of a book. It is called Five Little Indians, and it is being credited for really starting a national discussion about the importance of Indigenous authors when it comes to literary works in Canada. Well, the author of that book, Michelle Good, has now written another novel to keep the conversation going. Another book, and this one is a latest, it's an essay collection called Truth Telling. And Michelle Good joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Michelle, so great to have you on the program this morning. Well, thanks for having me. When you wrote Five Little Indians, did you expect that it would get the level of attention and the engagement that it got? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) I thoroughly expected that if it ever saw the light of day, it would be a niche book for a niche audience. So, you know, the, the, you know, incredible reception of the book was just so satisfying and exciting. Yeah. And can you remind people a little bit more about, about what it is about for anybody who hasn't read that book? Um, I don't think that there is anybody. <laughs> True. I guess. I guess. Well, it's about uh, five uh, residential school survivors, but it takes place primarily after they leave the school, and it focuses on the challenges that kids leaving the school faced in trying to make even a modest life with the uh, tremendous burden of psychological injury that they were carrying. And it was written to answer a very infuriating question, why can't they just get over it? Hmm. And it it won many awards, and uh, like you said, I think many, many people have read that book, and I think learned a lot from it. And now you have released this this new book, which is a series of essays, the collection Truth Telling, Seven Conversations About Indigenous Life in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, I was actually in process of writing another novel when things with Five Little Indians just took off as wildly as they did. And what that gave me was I was being invited to engage in conversations, do presentations and so on. And I was so amazed at the willingness of Canadians at this point to engage meaningfully in these kinds of conversations. And so I decided this is the moment. Let's fill out the the conversation, not just the one about, you know, that is engaged in, in Five Little Indians, but, you know, the rest of the colonial toolkit. You know, I refer to residential schools as an implement in the colonial toolkit. So I thought, well, let's open up the conversation about some of the other implements. And I know you draw a lot on your own experience and the the legacy of your family and that that is a big part of these essays. Uh, I should have mentioned off the top as well, uh, you are also a lawyer, a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. How challenging is it to draw on those experiences and then put them in a book and put them out there for people to read? Well, you know, I'm a retired lawyer. Um, I'm, I'm old. I'm 66 years old. And 
the the personal aspect was not a huge part, is not a huge part of these essays. But what I wanted to do was to first communicate the thing I'm talking about from a personal perspective, from my own perspective. Because I think if you're speaking personally, people are more able to engage meaningfully and then use that personal experience to extrapolate to the larger picture. Uh, you know, so we're talking about 60 Scoop, talking about me being in foster care. Okay, here's my experience and what it was like now. Imagine that for hundreds of thousands of Indigenous children. And I know you focus a lot as well on, and it's in the title as well, conversations about having those conversations rather than fighting or rather than being confrontational. Uh, do you see the, that changing and, and that there are more discussions and there are, there are more of those happening? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there is a place for standing firm. There is a place for protest and for, you know, extremely strong, we will not budge, you know, positions. But there's also contemporaneously a necessity for Canadians to speak to each other, for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians to speak to each other. Reconciliation is not going to happen on the floor of the House of Commons or at Government House or in legislation. It's going to happen across the backyard fence. It's going to happen when Indigenous people can understand non-Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people can understand Indigenous people. And importantly, the myth of Canadian history is done away with. We need to get to the true history. And you mentioned that you were actually working on another novel and uh, you put out this book of essays. Uh, have you have you gone back to working on the novel or what other works can we look forward to seeing from you? Well, you know, work is sort of defined loosely. <laughs> I'm, I'm very busy right now, as you can imagine, but um, so much of writing is thinking and uh, I will be... Uh, buckling down to the actual writing, you know, back getting back into the writing this fall. But uh, it's been really actually kind of great to, to have a little bit of time to just think about it and let it develop in my mind more. Yeah. Well, uh, I look forward to reading your latest work. I know many, many people do. Michelle, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are getting a bit of a more clear picture of foreign interference, or at least what has been happening with information, where it has been going, and where some of the breakdowns are as well. Talking about the ongoing hearings that are taking place, looking at this, and we've heard at those hearings from Vincent Rigby, who is a former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister, doing that job from January 2020 to June of 2021. Also a witness before the Committee on Procedures and House Affairs. And Vincent Rigby joins us now on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the comments that you made during your testimony while you appeared at the committee. One of those things about where the leaks are coming from and the leaks of that highly sensitive information, you talked about the fact that it is problematic and that the people releasing this information shouldn't be considered heroes. Can you expand and tell, talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was pretty blunt before the committee yesterday, and I, I wanted to make this point because I think there's a perception out there that uh, this individual or these individuals <clears throat> are, are heroes, whoever has leaked this information, but they're breaking the law. 
And when you release highly classified intelligence like that into the public domain, you're potentially undermining Canada's national security because you're showing hostile state actors what our, what our weaknesses may be, how we collect intelligence, what we know about their capabilities. You're also putting lives at risk. And uh, we have human sources where a lot of this intelligence may have been gathered from. And so if they're exposed, um, they, can, they can potentially be harmed. Um, and at the same time, when you have people leaking information like this, this is not the way parliamentary democracy works. Every time someone in the public service gets a little bit upset that uh, their advice isn't being followed or the information they're, they're providing isn't informing decisions the way they want them to, um, for them just to go public and, and try and expose the government, <clears throat> excuse me, for not acting a certain way. Um, I said before the committee, that could potentially lead to chaos because you'll have everybody, every public servant going public that, that way. And at the end of the day, public servants aren't accountable to Canadians. The government is accountable to Canadians. The governments have to answer to, to, um, to the, the, the public at, 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 uh, on these particular issues. So um, I just think it's a very dangerous precedent that's been set here. And I, I hope it doesn't uh, set an example for others to do, to do the same on a regular basis. Do you know the motivation, though, when you say it's because somebody's not happy that government isn't moving in a certain direction? Could it not be more than that, that it's somebody who is truly concerned that information isn't being treated the way it should be and that it needs to get attention and that that was the only way to do it? Well, that it's, we don't know what the motivation is at the end of the day for, for this individual or these individuals. Um, as your listeners probably know, uh, the leaker wrote a testimonial, I'm calling it, in the Globe and Mail some time ago, talking a little bit about why they did what they did. And it was kind of what you just said, that we felt that these were serious national security issues and that they had to be brought to the public domain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But again, the flip side of that is that in exposing all this information uh, to the public, uh, to the light of day, as I said before, you are undermining national security in a lot of ways. You're doing more harm than good, and you are potentially exposing individuals to harm. There are other ways to uh, make this information public. Uh, and you know what I find interesting is that all of these things are being discussed publicly, maybe not with the eye-opening headlines in the Globe and Mail and Global the way they have been recently, but... Uh, there are a couple of major reports that came out just before the Freedom Convoy and just, just before this crisis blew up, one from Ottawa U that I co-authored and one from CG, the think tank, saying there are all kinds of problems in our national security system, including with respect to foreign interference and information gathering and how we share information and governance, etc. So these issues were out there publicly, um, but they decided they wanted to, to, to really go whole hog and uh, and blow it up. And I just don't think it's the way to have an informed debate. The other problem is um, when you release one or two or three pieces of intelligence, you're not, you're not presenting a complete picture. What I said before the committee yesterday, it's, it's, it's like saying here, we want to show you a very, very complicated jigsaw puzzle and look, look at these pieces that we're showing you. But in fact, the jigsaw puzzle is missing the majority of the pieces. <laughs> all the context, all the other pieces that would have been looked at by experts inside government that would have been looked at potentially by the political level, they're not there. So it, um, it's, it's, not a, it's not an accurate picture necessarily. And as you've seen in the Johnson report, he's come out and said uh, a lot of this intel that was leaked, it's, it's misleading. It uh, wasn't properly analyzed and there was no context. So that, this is why it's a bit of a problem for me.
So what about the issue of uh, the the information surri- uh, surrounding and looking at, at what was known uh, and what was shared about the uh, the MPs who have been targeted by the Chinese government? And I know one of the Conservative MPs asked you about this, and this was targeting of MP of Michael Chong and the fact that this information was out there and passed along to high up ministers. And I know this happened after you left the position, but how did people not know about this? How was this information being circulated, but no one saw it? So as I said yesterday, um, you're right. And you said now I, I did not see this intelligence because it came out in July, 2021. I retired at the end of June. But I also said before the committee that it didn't come as a complete surprise to me that it didn't get up to the, the political level. And uh, this is one of the weaknesses of the system. I saw it when I was there. I, I took some steps to try and rectify it by creating a deputy minister committee to try and look at more actionable intelligence, short-term intelligence that we needed to move on. But that was still a, a work in progress. We don't flag actionable intelligence very well in the system. And I think that was acknowledged by my successor, Jody Thomas, when she went before the committee and pretty much said the same thing. And she's taken steps to rectify it as well. But you have thousands upon thousands of intelligence reports being produced by the community every month. And they're coming into PCO. They're going across government. They're, they're going to public safety. They're, they're going to global affairs. But no one is necessarily sitting down and going, OK, you've seen all these hundreds of pieces of intelligence today take a look at this one. (laughs) This one piece is really, really, really important. It's about targeting um, uh, an MP's family in in, in Hong Kong. And we should have a discussion about whether to take that up to the political level or not. That doesn't happen on a consistent basis. And I think that's what happened at PCO after I left. There was some shuffling around as to my successor. My formal successor wasn't named for six months. And there was some um, acting uh, NSIAs, and it, it fell between the cracks. What happened with respect to Minister Bill Blair is 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 um, a little bit more out of my domain. And I think the director of CSIS, is, uh, David Vigneault, is going to appear before the committee next week, and he'll talk a little bit more about what happened with Minister Blair. Minister Blair simply said it wasn't raised uh, to, 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 to him. Um, I'm not sure how CSIS feels about that. And they may say that actually they did try and put the information before him. I, I don't know. We'll see how it plays out next week when David appears before the committee. And just one other question and about the weaknesses. And like you said, there can be thousands of documents that people are seeing and maybe not ones that should get passed along don't. So what needs to change, do you think, uh, to strengthen those weaknesses? Well, I think that we have to put in place a better system to flag the documents first and foremost, the ones that are truly important. So as I said, I created a committee before I left that was starting to, to do that. And um, Jody Thomas, the current NSIA, I think has strengthened that. And um, we now have a body where they're going to sit down on a weekly basis and, and look at some of this really important intelligence and go, okay, do we need to put this up to the political level or not? Right now, everything that's coming through the system that um, is indicating the targeting of MPs with respect to foreign interference, that is going to go up automatically uh, to the political level. I have a bit of a problem with that because some of that intelligence will be uncorroborated. Um, They may not have had a chance to access its credibility. Um, So that, that, you know, be careful what you wish for. It could go, I said yesterday, it could go from from famine to feast, and you may gum up the system with too many documents now. So that's 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 the problem you've got to think about. The other issue is that once you get the intel up to the political level, you have to have a place where you have a discussion about what this intelligence means and what to do with it. 
in terms of the government. And that's what's missing right now. And so I, I said to the committee yesterday, we really should be looking in Canada at the creation of a national security cabinet committee chaired by the prime minister so that um, ministers aren't being briefed differently. Ministers aren't having different types of conversations. You have one body meets regularly on a weekly or biweekly basis chaired by the prime minister with his key national security public safety ministers, they receive the intelligence together, they have the discussion together, and then they decide together what to do with it. Um, You have an incident response group right now, but it only meets when there's a crisis. And there should be a regular committee meeting on a regular basis to to get stuff done before the crisis starts. So I think that's another thing that could really, really help. So the flow up, but then once it gets up, what you do with that, that flow at the political level. All right, Vincent Rigby, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.